Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. Robert Morris Owens, an unofficial advisor to Christina Caramo and her faction of the divided state GOP, doesn't imagine either the courts, the Republican National Committee, nor past President Donald Trump himself having much authority in resolving the current chair conflict. State Representative Alabas Farhat, a Dearborn Democrat, describes what it was like to read an opinion piece referring to his home city as America's jihad capital and to witness the security concerns it triggered in the country's highest Muslim population per capita city. Additionally, President Lou Glazer of Michigan Future Incorporated highlights a report finding that Michigan lagged behind national personal income per capita growth by more than $8,200 from 1999 to 2022. Now, here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, and politics reporter Maggie George. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. I hope all of our listeners are doing absolutely fantastic today, especially after the Sunday sunshine we recently got. Quick disclaimer before we begin our interview with Robert M. Owens, a former Delaware, Ohio attorney who's now serving as a volunteer grassroots political organizer after he was indefinitely suspended by the Ohio Supreme Court in 2022. Uh, Now he's unofficially affiliated with the Karamo faction of the state GOP. Uh, The audio at hand was edited for the sake of time. Uh, But ultimately, to begin this episode, we are participating in a subject that a lot of people get a charge out of discussing here in Michigan, um, observing and dissecting the currently divided Michigan Republican Party. There are a lot of hypotheses about who are the people continuing to back Christina Caramo as she fights to maintain a chair post now that the state party has been ultimately split into two. Uh, One faction where she remains as the leader and in another that called to vacate her and to replace her with Pete Hoekstra, a former U.S. House member and Trump-era ambassador to the Netherlands. As opposed to merely just talking about the Karamo faction, we are going to directly talk to someone who served as a close friend and an unofficial advisor in terms of policy and fundraising to the Karamo faction, and that is Communications Director Robert Owens of Michigan Republican Policy. Uh, Hello, how are you? Good morning, uh, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me on. Please, my friends, call me Mo. Please uh, call me Mo. Hello, Mo. Now, who exactly is Michigan Republican policy? I know that you just clarified to us that there is a difference between the state GOP and Michigan Republican policy. Certainly. So Michigan Republican policy is an independent think tank. Um, we uh, provide policy concepts and we uh, provide messaging on uh, and commentary on various issues. But uh, to be clear, we are uh, privately funded. We're exercising our First Amendment rights, I think those still exist. Do those still exist, Samantha? I hope so. <laughs> In any event, uh, so we we uh, serve in an unofficial uh, capacity to be able to put out some uh, messaging and let people know sort of the inside baseball of exactly what's going on with a detailed newsletter. And uh, here, hopefully today, we're working through some of the security and technical issues We're going to have our website, puregrassroots.org, go up, and it's got some explosive new recordings uh, of secretly recorded conversations by uh, 
Warren Carpenter and Troy Cummings and some of the insiders on the John Yob slash uh, sort of anti-Karamo faction. And uh, it's going to be dynamite. Before we get into all that, because I'm very interested to hear what you got, uh, explain to our listeners how you got involved in Michigan Republican politics and maybe a little bit about your background as well. Certainly. Uh, thanks, Kyle, so much uh, for having me on uh, again and for reaching out to me on this. So uh, I was uh, at the February convention in which uh, Karamo was uh, elected. I was uh, in, a, in a media capacity. I was writing for the New American Magazine. One of the things that was fascinating about this conference, Kyle and Samantha, is that during this uh, during this convention, there were thousands of delegates. And I mean, they're all wearing Trump hats and MAGA shirts. And when the president came on to do an endorsement of Matt DiPerno, there were thousands of them booing the president. Like they're wearing a hat, booing the president. <laughs> like, oh, this is really something else. I got to check this out. So uh, in any event, uh, I had been, you know, helping some of the folks uh, around the state of Michigan uh, with some uh, programming uh, and some media relations stuff in my capacity working with the John Birch Society as well. And so I was pretty well aware that this was a situation in which the sort of donor class Republican Party in Michigan had completely crashed and burned. I mean, to the point where they had epic losses across the board that hadn't been seen in 40 years. And when you count in issue two and three, this was perhaps the most epic beatdown of the Republican Party in a state that I think I've ever witnessed. I mean, this is like historically bad kind of stuff. But the plus to historically bad kind of stuff like this is that when you have those opportunities, then there's a real opportunity for sea change. And that was definitely the flavor of this convention in February, where so many of these delegates sort of rose up and said, hey, the, the Ron Weisers, the DeVosses, you know, all you guys stink. You're out of here. We don't want you anymore. And so it was really sort of ripped out root and stem. Uh, from from that respect. And I've never seen anything quite like that before either. So uh, with that uh, involved, um, you know, I just started, you know, providing some advice and some concepts and some ideas to uh, to some of the people uh, inside the uh, the Karamo administration. And I think they've got, you know, some wonderfully talented people with great integrity but not years of experience, you know, operating a political party from a professional perspective. And so, you know, they were at a little bit of a disadvantage from that perspective. Now, that said, I'll take integrity over experience any day of the week. And what these people have integrity. And in particular, when you have an opportunity, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to meet Christina one-on-one, -on -one, but like she lives at you know lives with her dad drives a beat up car she's not interested in fancy cars not interested in fancy houses quite honestly you can shove your fancy power positions she doesn't want any of it just to be clear here mo uh, you have never had a paid position at michigan republican party right that's correct yeah i've never yep. been okay. I've, I've i've done lots of volunteer work and uh, like at the leadership conference uh, you know, I was able to secure a number of uh, donors, large donors uh, for the uh, the conference. Uh, but uh, all of what I did specifically as in me with the uh, with the Michigan Republican Party, always in a volunteer capacity. No, I think a question that a lot of 
observers have right now is what's actually going to resolve the situation right now. You have a party that is split into two. Trump has made an endorsement of Pete Hoekstra as the chair of the state GOP. Uh, the National Republican Party is kind of staying a little bit more hands off at this period in time. Uh, what What is the point of resolution? What's it going to take to finally decide the final outcome of who really is chair here? Well, you, you know, I think what brought the chair in was the people and the delegates. And the only way to take the chair out is the people and the delegates. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, when you look at the bylaws of the uh, Michigan Republican Party uh, and you see, all right, well, who's in charge of electing the uh, or, or even removing the, the chair? Is it the state central committee? Is it the RNC? Is it, you know, the former president of the, the United States, Donald Trump? Well, I think it's one, the state central committee. And from a state central committee standpoint, the numbers are very clearly in Christina Caramo's favor. So, you know, when you look at the numbers, basically it's about a two thirds Caramo, one third anti-Caramo, you know, division on the state central committee. And 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 that's really where the, the litmus test is going to come into play, because that's how the bylaws read. I don't even think a court can make a decision in this case, quite honestly, because Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals precedent that applies in Michigan is very clear that the court doesn't have what's called subject matter jurisdiction to deal with inter-party squabbles. So the reality is that right now, the Christina Caramo and uh, her administration, they've got control over the website, the accounts. They're the ones that do the filings. They get the postal code. And the postal code, understand, is, the, is one of the crown jewels in this thing, right? Because you need to understand that the way that party politics works, if you are the party, you get a special postal code, which is like a net 20% discount on actual costs of sending out direct mail. So getting an endorsement from the party so that you can send out direct mail through the party, this is to a political consultant like John Yab going into the 24 cycle. This is a many millions of dollars propositions, even just in the state of Ohio with regard to the profitability that he has by being a consultant and arranging direct mail to go through the, the MyGop postal code. So, you know, that's the one of the key things that's really being fought over that nobody's really talking about is, you know, behind the scenes stuff like that. And, and that's one of the points of MRP is to, you know, try to bring out into the sunlight and expose those kinds of things. Uh, Mo, I want to also ask about uh, this chatter that I've seen uh, regarding the oversized role that uh, a consultant has had over Christina Caramo named Mike Labadee. Uh, I was listening to a podcast that went on for about an hour and 45 minutes with former people who had worked with Christina Caramo for several years who say that Mike Labadee has used his intelligence background to basically brainwash Christina Caramo and uh, to essentially um, do what he wants her to do. I wanted to see if you have worked with Mike Labadee and to get your response to those criticism that he is basically running the party and is using everybody around her sphere uh, to uh, basically do what he wants. 
Yeah. So great, great question. Kyle. And, you know, and I know Don Beatty and I, uh, I know Lois and I know some of the people that are, you know, the former employees that have come out to say whatever. I can't remember the executive director. I think now he's working in the Hill. I'm guessing that he wants no part of this nonsense. Like he's, uh, he's, I think, definitely more professional. So first of all, uh, you know, Don, in addition to sp spreading this labity stuff, was saying things like, well, Christina stole $1.9 million and you can go to the FEC records. And when you go to the FEC records, you see, no, it wasn't Christina that took $1.9 million. It was Ron Wisner that the day before Christina took over transferred $1.9 million. And Don said, well, uh, she went to uh, Mar-a-Lago and Trump offered her $20 million and she turned it down. And I mean, this is just nonsense. And the stuff with Mike Lavity is right up there with telling Trump that she doesn't want $20 million or, you know, the uh, the rest of it. I mean, the, the reality is she's a spurned former employee that got canned because she wasn't effective and his butt heard about it. That's the reality of, of the situation. And anybody that knows Christina Caramo, they would know that the idea that somebody has brainwashed this woman or is remote controlling her like they obviously don't know christina christina is a powerhouse well don's not and, the only one though i mean there was a story that was written by a journalist that that said there were as many as six people who used to work with her so she's not alone on it well no and i i mean the, the bottom line is they're all i mean if there's six, quite honestly, I, I doubt the uh, the numbers. They have a habit of greatly inflating things, especially when they're confidential and such. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's Don and, and Lois and then maybe a couple of, uh, you know, like Andy Seabold and Bree Morningberg. I mean, if those are two, that, that definitely, I mean, that's what it is. So the, the reality is, Mike, I mean, that is a person and he has had some unofficial roles you know, I mean, if he's been paid anything like, you know, I haven't been paid anything. I don't think Mike's been, you know, paid anything. Um, it, it's in a unofficial advisor role. He doesn't show up tough. I mean, time you actually saw him at an event. And I mean, they would tell you it'd be a year or more. So uh, Mike's a you know, nice guy. Uh, I've chatted with him uh, before. I like Mike. Uh, personally, but the uh, idea that he's some, um, you know, outsized uh, uh, person that is controlling Christina by remote control, this is literally as ludicrous as Christina telling Trump to take his $20 million and pound salt and is false and is verifiably, quite honestly, false as uh, the $1.9 million that Christina apparently stole. It's ridiculous. At this point, between the Karamo faction and the Hoekstra faction, are there ideological differences between the two? And if not, what's driving this battle into the lucrative election year besides parliamentarianism? Based on the arguments about how bylaws were followed, how did you decide which chair you would recognize if they both represent the same stances and values? So, you know, there's a very hard ideological, you know, split. Now, to be clear, you know, sometimes the rhetoric gets mumbled jumbled, right? So you'll have folks like uh, Bree or Andy or some of the ne'er-do-wells in the, in the sort of January 6th coup crew that will, you know, talk about constitutionalism and that kind of stuff. And really their motivation is just that they've been promised advancement. They've been promised lucrative contracts. And we see this. I'm not just 
throwing this out, you can actually see a history of secretly recorded conversations of John Yab using a guy named Dennis Lennox to bribe and control and extort people with, you know, all kinds of stuff. We've got secretly recorded videos where extortion is being specifically being used. And that you know information will be up on our uh, website as well. But really at the top of the ladder, I mean, if you cut right down to it, uh, John Yab is the, is the instigator behind it. He's a longtime political activist, and he specifically works for the globalist set of the Republican Party. Christina very much represents the Americanist you know, America first construct of the Republican Party. So there's a hard ideological split between Americanism and globalism. Christina represents Americanism. Pete Hoekstra and John Gubb represent globalism. And that's the major fight that exists. And that's why this is sort of a, a no holds barred cage match, death match kind of thing, because they understand that there's no backing down. There's no way out. It's Americanism or globalism. And one of the other is going to win this thing. Now, this is a question that our um, Maggie, our political reporter, initially wanted to ask. But now, because we're so near the end of segment, I mean, what are your thoughts on Senate Minority Leader Nesbitt and House Minority Leader Matt Hall, who now say that to them, they're the leaders of the Michigan Republicans? Yeah, I would say they haven't really been paying attention to to the people of Michigan, right? When you look at their, you know, voting record, you look at Eric Nesbitt's voting record, it's abysmal. This is not something that that the people of Michigan are looking for. This has nothing to do uh, with sort of the revival of, you know, sort of uh, original context, constitutionalism, Federalist Papers kind of stuff. I mean, these guys are lukewarm Republicans. Blech. That's how the, the general people and Matt Hall, I mean, oh my gosh, when he dragged his girlfriend into the, the caucus room to have her say, oh, it's all my fault. I mean, I'm wondering, is she like blinking, help me in SOS stuff, you know, to the crowd? I mean, this is disgusting. This guy needs to resign and, and go away, quite honestly. And, and, and these guys represent so much of what's just sort of wrong with the Republican Party. They're out of touch with the, uh, the Michigan electorate. They're out of touch with the delegates. They're out of touch with their constituents. And uh, they're not the leaders of anything other than just sort of the lukewarm Republican do-nothing movement that led to an epic loss in 2022. Mo, you've certainly uh, gotten some friends along the way here. I was sent some articles uh, last month from somebody who um, uh, shared with me that you were um, suspended in order to repay $122,000 to six victims um, regarding some stealing uh, from clients in the state of Ohio in Delaware County. What can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, yeah. Th thank you, Kyle, for uh, for asking that. That's actually one of my favorite questions. You know, these guys attack me on this and they don't realize it's like a top line resume item that gives me bona fides all over uh, the country. So uh, what I can say about this, and, and it's you know still uh, under appeal uh, going forward, is that I've been a, a long time uh, thorn in the side of, uh, of Mike DeWine. Uh, this is a, a political hit job, you know, all the way forward. Uh, there are several others that uh, along with me were uh, uh, very instrumental in uh, getting a veto override uh, of him in 2021. We just successfully got another veto override of him in, in 2024. 
And those that know me know that this is total BS, but the, uh, you know, one of the litmus tests on this that really, uh, I think, draws people in is that uh, this was something where, you know, our local prosecutor was removed and replaced with special counsel to get the indictment, and the indictment was done by Pat DeWine's own daughter. Um, so that sort of gives you an idea uh, of exactly what we're uh, we're dealing with. So what I can say is it's a total political hit job and everybody that looked into it know that's exactly what it is. And then I just had one more question here. Um, the uh, RNC has a special committee now to look into the chair situation uh, here in Michigan. If they decide that Pete Hoekstra and that faction successfully did remove Christina Caramo at that January 6th meeting, do you expect her to go ahead and turn over all the financials and the postage stamp and everything else to that faction? Or do you expect something different? Well, I, you know, I expect that, uh, you know, and I should say this is just, you know, Mo yeah, just uh, saying it. Uh, I expect that the bylaws will be followed. And when I take a look at the bylaws, let's see here. Nothing about the RNC gets to determine who the chair is. So my expectation is that they would say, well, that's cool opinion, but that doesn't apply. And that's not a function of, uh, you know, Christina, I think, being uh, egotistical at all. It's a function of she's got a duty to the delegates that elected her to not back down, to, to not uh, wilt in the face of adversity. And, and the bottom line is this. You know, the, the whole point about fundraising is a joke to begin with, because at the end of the day, there's no amount of money that at this point is going to sway people that they're going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I mean, Maggie, Samantha, can you imagine anybody changing their mind at this point? I mean, it's pretty much said. I don't think we got a lot of undecideds, you know, left on this thing. But the reality is just will there be a fair election? The delegates know that Christina Caramo will go after a fair election. And the bottom line is the state party has special authority when it comes to uh, like election observation, objections that can be made on behalf of the Republican Party. And I think that specific aspect is something that Caramo and her team will hang on to and fight for. And we will be with her fighting every step of the way, because at the end of the day, Donald Trump doesn't need anybody to raise a penny for him. The only thing that man needs to win is a fair election. Mo, one thing that I found interesting is your presence on the social media platform X, and you've been pretty vocal on there. You've tagged several Michigan journalists in your posts, and you've mentioned things like RNC chairwoman McDaniel and posting memes asking her to step down, saying that it's time for her to step down based on her involvement in the MRP chair conflict, and also saying that there's evidence that the call made from Mar-a-Lago to somebody at the special meeting of the state committee that um, endorsed Pete Hoekstra as a candidate was fake. So I'm curious how closely that represents Karamo's administration's interests, because after you know you started posting those things, eventually Karamo made a video that she also posted on X that said that the RNC chairwoman doesn't have the authority to be involved in the way that she is or the RNC in general, but she didn't she didn't exactly call for her to step down the way that you did. And she hasn't reiterated the claim that you said that that phone call was fake. She's just said that Donald Trump also doesn't have the authority to step in. So I'm curious how closely you're working with her and how closely you represent her interests on social media. Yeah, Maggie, I, you know, great observations. And obviously you're playing 
paying close attention uh, to this. And I appreciate the uh, the, the details. So uh, I can say that officially uh, my statements are my own. Uh, Christina's statements uh, are our own. And unfortunately, that's about all I can officially say about that. But your observations, I, I think I think those are spot on observations. I think you're paying attention. Oh, unfortunately, we definitely went over time and we didn't even get around to the beginning segment icebreaker. I'm so sorry, Mo. Everybody, that is Robert Owens, the current uh, the current communications director of Michigan Republican Policy. Thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being on. Joining us for our second segment of the MERS Monday podcast is State Representative Alabas Farhat, whose Southeast Michigan District, the third state house district, consists of parts of Detroit, all of Melvindale, and the majority of Dearborn. Representative Farhat accepted our invitation to come on late Sunday evening. As alarm in Michigan continues to circulate around an opinion piece published in the Wall Street Journal on February 2nd. It was not by an official Wall Street Journal staff member, but was submitted and written by Stephen Selinsky, the executive director of the Middle East Media Research Institute. Full disclaimer, I have not personally read the opinion piece, at least not beyond its title. Welcome to Dear Porn, America's Jihad Capital, where the city, which has been nationally recognized as home to the largest Muslim population in the United States per capita, was described as where politicians and local mosque-goers quote, side with Hamas against Israel and Iran against the U.S., end quote. According to city officials, the Wall Street Journal piece has directly resulted in an increase in security around places of worship. Representative Farhat, first, thank you for joining us on the podcast today and to kick off our conversation. Before you viewed the Wall Street Journal title as a concerned lawmaker, what was it like to read it as a community member? What did you initially feel? Yeah, I'll say this, um, Samantha, I'll, I'll spare you the displeasure of reading such a bigoted piece, right? Because when I read it, my first reaction was, first of all, how would the Wall Street Journal put their name uh, or allow a publication like this to be printed on their name, right, uh, under their their banner? And I, I, it was harmful. It pushes a, a post 9-11 stereotype by Arab Americans, and it brings up this question again uh, about how American, how patriotic we are as Arab Muslim Americans, uh, when so many of us know people who are either serving our armed forces, serving in our law enforcement, who are teachers, who are educators, um, I, I was—I'll be honest—I was hurt a little bit by, by by these remarks. I was shocked that um, a, a a publication would push and publish something like this. Can you give our listeners who haven't seen it kind of the gist of what they were going for here? Were they just trying to make a statement that this is where a large number of Arab Americans? live and who are very passionate about what they're seeing right now in uh, the Gaza Strip. Yeah, Kyle, it was full of insinuation. It was an insinuation that, you know, these uh, the pro-Palestinian protests are in some way in, in, in condoning uh, Hamas or condoning the actions we saw on October 7th. When, and I'll say this, right, uh, the loss of life is a tragic thing. And the loss of innocent life is something we all should condemn universally, whether it was on October 7th or it's today. It's something I condemn. But the, the 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 reality is that the Wall Street Journal is this really I mean this publication I mean they're far right I think this editorial board was really far right here 
they went off the deep end here, taking a big shot, beating down on a minority community like the Arab American community. And they're doing it to appease, in my opinion, a reader base that has become accustomed to watching, to reading these pieces centered on, centered on uh, picking up, beating down minorities like the Wall Street Journal has. You know, I want to zoom in on the community of Dearborn itself. I mean, what would you say is a stigma that Dearborn has that even greater Michiganders have that Michigan itself allows itself to be subjected to? Yeah, I think a lot of people get surprised by the strong diversity Dearborn has. Um, We are a city that's proud to be home to new Americans and immigrants. That's true. But we're also a city that's proud of our longstanding American roots, whether it's at the Henry Ford Museum, uh, the Rouge plant, one of the first plants uh, ever to be built, um, and 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 where the best-selling pickup truck in America is, is built, the F-150, right? Uh, we root for the Lions on Sundays, and we watch eagerly to see if the Pistons can snap a losing streak, right? Uh, that's who we are here in Dearborn. We're proud Americans. And I, I want to point out, too, you know, back to the point of many being servicemen and women, our city council president, Mike Serini, his brother, Sam Serini, is right now on a U.S. warship as its commander. It's currently on on mission, right? These are the people that the Wall Street Journal are taking a shot at. These are the people that they're casting an aspersion at, right? Folks who are serving in our armed forces, and they're putting a, and they're putting the people that live here in danger too. Let's be clear, right? And so my message to the folks is this: Come down to Dearborn. I'll be happy to host you myself, the mayor. We'll be happy to show you the diversity of our city and show you how welcome the place we are. Whether it's our strong Italian community, our Polish community, uh, our Arab American community and all the things that we have for the world. I know that there were some pictures that were posted online uh, when the president was visiting Michigan of a type of Palestinian protest and, um, you know, a lot of commotion. I know that that picture wasn't taken wherever Joe Biden was, but can you give us kind of a sense of the type of protests that we've seen in Dearborn? And is there a reason why a national publication then would, would extrapolate, you know, maybe a couple protests and blow it up into something larger than it is. Yeah, you know, I'll say this. I think to first understand why this issue matters for the Arab American community, the Muslim American community, you have to understand how many of them came to this country. Where they, people like myself, whose parents came from the Middle East, still have strong roots in the region, whether it's in Lebanon uh, or in Palestine. And for them, when we turn on the television set and we're seeing people like our cousins being being bombed, we're seeing the loss of life, we're seeing you know, innocent civilians that are Jewish, that are Muslim, that are Christian being killed and bombed indiscriminately, right? That to us strings a chord because we know loved ones. When you say this number of 30,000 dead Palestinians, there's a gentleman in Dearborn who, who's lost 80 of his family members, right? And so that story, uh, that story rings true to many folks here. And so these protests are really uh, us voicing or people in the district voicing their frustrations, saying this country, America, the country that we love, that we care for, that we are committed to to preserving its values on, uh, needs to do a better job at being the the moral leader that we know America can be. They need to do a better job at ending the killings that we're seeing on television. Uh, And they need to do a better job at at securing peace. Look, I'll I'll say this, you know, President Biden uh, right now, I want to actually compliment him a little bit. He went out there and condemned the Wall Street Journal piece. Uh, right, which speaks volumes on his Twitter. Uh, and I think that that right there is what a lot of Americans are looking for is listen to the concern of the community, hear out why we're frustrated. Okay. We have these far right leaders uh, that are trying to undermine our democratic institutions, 
whether it's Benjamin Netanyahu, in my opinion, in Israel, who's denying peace talking efforts, who's delayed hostage releases, who's made it harder for President Biden's administration uh, to get to the table and, and actually secure the region, uh, or it's here at home where we have uh, Republican leaders uh, like President Trump, former President Trump, pushing hateful rhetoric, right? Let's, I want to be clear, the same headline and the same insinuations were, were made in this editorial about there being a pro-Iran, pro-Hamas, pro-whatever, uh, uh, are the same insinuations being made by the former president about these protesters, right? So when I say this is a far-right kind of ideology, and it's sad to see the Wall Street Journal continue to partake in it, that's the reality, is that it starts in the far-right, and it creeps, its, it tries to creep its way into our mainstream society, right? And that's why I was glad and grateful that the president condemned hate for what it was and called it out for what it is. And that, one, it has no place in our society, and two, it's not true. I know that a lot of political pundits are looking at this right now. Overall, did Joe Biden, has he ultimately lost the Arab American community, and will that impact his fate in November 2024? I think a question that I have is that if the Arab if the Arab American community doesn't want Biden, and they've already walked away from Trump, where do they go in November yeah, well, I think to answer that question, you know, we first have to look at where we are in the timeline, right? We're sitting in February, and it's a long way till November. There's a lot of things that I think we can we can see President Biden do that can help reopen the door and re-secure support in the Arab community, um, whether it's calling for a ceasefire, restoration of humanitarian aid, and working towards a long-term lasting peace in the region, right? I've talked to folks on both sides of this issue, and they can only that they have some level of, they have they have strong frustrations actually. Right. And, and the handling the U.S. is handling here. But they all can agree that certain people uh, like Benjamin Netanyahu have made it harder for for peace to actually take place. And I think the best thing President Biden can do to re-secure support is both here and abroad uh, for his domestic policy and foreign policy is to work on getting uh, Benjamin Netanyahu out of the room, out of these conversations, and then also focusing on restoring humanitarian aid and ending uh, ending uh, the the violence and expansion of the war in the Middle East. I think that's the biggest thing he can do right now, because I think there's a way for him to re-secure support in the Arab American community. I think it's possible. I think on the other side of this coin is a candidate who is much more for the right, uh, who who aligns himself with the dangerous rhetoric and talking points of Benjamin Netanyahu, and who would, quite frankly, care less about the devastation that a conflict like this is causing, and that's the former President Trump. I hosted a uh, U.S. Senate forum a couple weeks ago, and the question of uh, Israel and Hamas came up. And uh, one of the candidates had suggested that if you want a ceasefire, we had a ceasefire before October 7. And so now if we want a ceasefire, then the people of Gaza have to um, turn over the folks of Hamas and, um, and, and its leaders, release the hostages, and, um, and dismantle Hamas and get a different type of governorship in Gaza, and we've got a ceasefire. What's wrong with that strategy? You know, I'll say this, Kyle. First, I, I, I want to say that the release of hostages should be unconditional, right? There are, whether they're American hostages being held by, by, uh, by Hamas, uh, or they are hostages that are innocent civilians being held by Israel, the release should be unconditional. Let them go home. Let them uh, leave this conflict. They should have no place being put in the middle of a war zone against their will. That's my first thing. I think the greater issue is when we look at how Hamas has taken to power, right, in 2006, 2000, it was through an election that was held once. And there's been even reports that the far-right government, Benjamin Netanyahu, helped to support 
Hamas's ability to take power in the region, right? And to the Gaza. I think uh, I've had this conversation with people. If they want to see a change in the way that Gaza is governed and the way that Gaza is administered, that starts by uh, having really good foreign policy decision makers, allowing uh, foreign aid to go back into the country, allowing them to hold free and fair elections, allowing them to start to build a government that can provide social services, that can provide uh, necessities that they need. Hamas right now does more than just fight, right? They're a part of that government in, in, in Gaza, and they do provide these services, right, that many people have come to rely on. And the, the sad reality is also they, they have killed innocent civilians. And so we have to focus as a U.S. foreign policy right body on how we can uh, help the people in Gaza establish a government where they can provide these services, where they no longer are reliant on these, these groups to do it for them, right? I think it's much more nuanced than just saying, well, walk away from Hamas, right? Well, just, just turn them over. That, that, that right there, I think, is very reductionist. That right there is the reason why we keep kicking, the, that's kicking the can down the road, to be honest, Kyle, right? Because how do you do that? How do we get to that point? How do we allow uh, the people in Gaza to have the ability to make their own decisions, to govern themselves, to be able to partake in free trade with their Egyptian partners, right? Right now, they can't do that. They can't trade produce. Back in 2020, they couldn't. 2019, they couldn't, right? They can't do import exports, right? Nothing can come in or out, right? And so again, how do we get them off this forced dependency? It starts by looking at who's allowed these conditions to exist. That's been Benjamin Netanyahu for the longest time. And that starts also, too, by the international community playing a greater role in making sure that there can be free and fair elections in the region. Have you actually, when you think about some of these interfaith efforts that are happening at home, and I'm going to zoom in here in Michigan, where we have both a Arab American community that's very, very much hurting right now and a Jewish community that's very, very much hurting right now. I mean, have you seen any real progress with these interfaith efforts or does it seem like the problem is going to get worse before it gets better? Yeah, I mean, the reality is people are hurting and there's a lot of uh, frustration and emotions are high. For the reasons we've outlined, right? They people have loved ones that are being directly impacted by this conflict, um, and I can speak for myself in that. You know, I I try to be um, proactive in these conversations and reaching out to folks in the Jewish community, and and I want to actually shout out uh, my colleagues in the state house, right? No Arbit, Sam Stackloff, uh, for being kind of thought leaders in the space and being folks that we, that I, have been able to come to rely on and ask questions and vice versa. I know they do the same. Uh, and I think that's a model for our communities to follow. And I know the interfaith community in my district uh, has reached out historically, had longstanding relationships with synagogue leaders and rabbis, right? And that's something that I'm glad is still continuing, that these conversations are still continuing, right? Because here at home, we've set the model uh, for how Jews and Arabs and, and folks of all different backgrounds and all different races can get along for most part. Now, where 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 the wrench gets thrown in is when there's these divisive articles like the Wall Street Journal that inflame hate and inflame uh, bigotry in our communities. Um, but we can't allow that. Right. We as leaders have to set the example for people. Right. And we do that through our rhetoric, through our remarks, by by calling it out for what it is and condemning hate in all its forms. But I can say that there has been some interfaith outreach. And the healing process is going to be one that takes some time, right? Because you can't really truly heal until a ceasefire is established and, and the pain stops for some time. But I can say that there has been outreach. 
Is there a fear of social media right now? And I say this because whenever I've entered this conversation about the Israel versus Hamas war as a journalist, I really like to have the disclaimer of I am not a geopolitical expert, never was, never have been. Uh, but there's a lot of people poking each other right now online that are trying to be geopolitical experts. I mean, are you afraid of the social media frenzy that has occurred because of high tensions in the Middle East? Yeah, you know what? What I what I worry about is kind of the ability for social media to be a catalyst for hate speech, right? Because hate speech can lead to, to hate crimes, like we're seeing now, and that's what really concerns me of social media. Um, when I turn on my Twitter, when I go on my Facebook, when I go on Instagram, I see you know some really um, some really kind of bigoted threads, right? Um, and it's not a secret that that you know it's caused. The, the mayor recently said it, it's caused the need for increased police presence at houses of worship and at soft targets uh, at schools because of the, the the hate that these times have kind of brought up. Um, and I think it's imperative on a lot of leaders and on, on leaders on both sides to really call this out. Uh, I will point out that, you know, there was a lot of whether it was the Wall Street Journal or other times that hate has spiked. Uh, I do acknowledge that members of our congressional delegation here in Michigan have done it, um, that the president himself has done it just recently. Um, it's disheartening, however, that there hasn't been a prominent either national Republican or member of the Republican congressional delegation here that's done it, that's condemned this hate speech. And I think that, to me, is extremely concerning, Concerning, right? Um, but I think, you know, social media comes along. We have to just be cognizant of the fact that it can be a serious, an echo chamber for hate. Uh, I, I have one more question I wanted to ask, and that has to do with the tolerance just in general within the Arab community toward the LGBTQ community and discussions in Dearborn about book bans and, and this type of thing. Can you give our listeners a little bit of the background on on why there's tension there? Yeah, I'll say this. In Dearborn, we're not trying. The folks in Dearborn are not trying to book ban. I think what had happened was it was a it was an incident where misinformation really took grip in a community that uh, is very concerned, shares very strong family values, and a community that is very welcoming, um, and a community that cares a lot about making sure that we're inclusive. Um, but misinformation did take grip in that time. It was during the 2022 gubernatorial election. Uh, and so you had folks look, actually, here's the funny story. You had Christina Caramo sitting at these school board meetings uh, saying, hey, I'm a former teacher. I know it should be in these. This shouldn't be in your school. And it was actually one of those moments where when I when I saw it on the live stream, I'm like, wait, Christina Caramo is sitting here and, and she's trying to fan these flames. And I, unfortunately, they did succeed in fanning the flames herself and Matt DiPerno, um sitting front and center um, ahead of the Irwin school board meeting. And so that's why I think has caused a lot of uh, misinformation and maybe a misrepresentation of how inclusive of a community, the Arab Muslim community is. We're very inclusive. We're very welcoming. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm proud of, of the fact that, and, and, you know, I was, I'll say this. I'm proud of the fact that in Dearborn, you know, we have um, the ability for all folks and all all types of all folks from all types of races and walks of life to coexist here peacefully. The mayor's done a great job at making sure everybody feels safe. He's done a great job at making sure his policy and his administration is inclusive, right? And so I'll say, in that moment of time, misinformation was really was really kind of taking hold, and that's what concerned me to your earlier question, Samantha, about social media as it could be an engine also, not just for hate, but for misinformation, right? And I, I think that's a point to highlight as well. And I would say I have a similar question to Kyle's. I mean, how does the Arab American community feel about the abortion topic? 
uh, especially at a time where Democrats are hoping that maybe it could give them some presidential national election success. So let me just add, right, uh, the voters of Michigan overwhelmingly adopted uh, the, the the Proposal 3. And I think if you look at the numbers in Dearborn, uh, it won the city of Dearborn as well, uh, which is the majority Arab American city. Uh, there's a spectrum of opinions, right? You have Arab Christians, you have Arab Muslims. Uh, and I want to point that out because, again, you have folks who ha in that spectrum uh, have a variety of religious beliefs. But by and large, you know, the Arab American community, when it comes to the issues of abortion uh, and otherwise, you know, approach them from a very from a very cautious line because they want to ensure that one, we're not, especially after the book issue, we don't get burnt again, right? Is that they want to make sure they understand the facts. Um, you know, I was proud of uh, our ability this year to making sure that uh, a woman's right to choose is preserved and protected. Uh, and I know that um, that fight is still long an ongoing one. But in the, as far as the Arab community, Arab American community goes, uh, it's a it's a conversation and it's a, one of those issues that you know is a is a is one that they've they've historically and again they want one of the city of Dearborn, and that's what I'll say on that. When you think about the saying that's been said at these ceasefire rallies to the river to the sea, uh, that is recognized as an anti-Semitic term, uh, why why do you think protesters? And again, this doesn't include yourself, but why do you think protesters continue to say it, although Jewish leaders continue to plea and beg them to stop? You know, here, here's what I'll say, uh, Samantha. You know, uh, at the onset of the the kind of conflict. Um, emotions are very high and, and protesters might have been saying certain things, but I know this. I know that during a time where people are witnessing their loved ones being murdered, during a time where, uh, you know, Jews have been killed, during a time where uh, there's been so much suffering, uh, we really, as as leaders like myself and as um, uh, uh, people who are at these protests, need to focus on what matters. And what matters is having a meaningful, respectful dialogue and discourse and, and making sure that we're communicating the message of a ceasefire as effectively as possible. You know, I want to point out, though, too, you know, that saying from the river to the sea, um, I can understand why many Jewish leaders can find it offensive. But I'll say it's equally offensive when the prime minister of Israel is saying it uh, in his official capacity as the prime minister. Right. When he says it. Uh, he is a policymaker. That is a policy decision maker that's saying it versus the average person on the street. Now, both in both instances, uh, I agree we should avoid stroking up such strong emotions and stroking, and stroking up these fears uh, of, of, of what those connotations can mean. But I think it's important to note that in the peacemaking dialogue, in the ceasefire dialogue, in, uh, in on the pathway to achieving an unconditional release of the hostages uh, that are being held currently, rhetoric like that from the Prime Minister of Israel is also extremely, uh, extremely inappropriate this time when the focus should be on, on bringing back tensions and resecuring peace in the region. As we begin to close out this segment, can you talk about the political journey of Arab American voters in our country, going from Republican voters to Democrats to now being in a state of disenchantment with both parties. Look, I, I you know, it wasn't in, in 2000. It was uh, a big Bush year for a lot of Arab American voters. Um, but now I'll tell you this, you know, the, the my goal, I'm a Democrat. Uh, and my goal is to try and make sure my party is the best party can be and that it represents all voices that make up our great state. 
uh, and the Arab American community right now, they definitely feel disenchanted and disillusioned from the Republican Party when you have its leaders uh, fanning the flames of bigotry publicly, right? And when they are calling, uh, calling, calling, you know, pro-Palestinian supporters anything under the sun and, and essentially correlating them with supporting terrorism. Uh, and then the Democratic Party, I think what we want to see and what many Arab Americans want to see is a greater cause for humanitarian relief and that the party continues to reflect the humanitarian values that we all hold, right? That that we are outspoken when innocent children are being taken as hostages or being killed. And I think that's the moment right now that the Arab American community finds itself in. But for myself as a Democrat, for myself and my role, you know, I'm going to continue engaging with my community and relaying their concerns because I want to see this year to be a big, I want 2024 to be a big year for Democrats up and down the ticket. Um, and that just means that we're incorporating those voices uh, at the highest level of government and making sure they're being heard uh, to making sure that they don't feel like the Democratic Party no longer represents or makes up their voices. But I think, again, it's a long way from now until November. I think there's a lot of good conversations that are going to be had. I think there's a lot of uh policy changes that may be coming down the pipeline that um, are going to help reconnect and reestablish and re-secure the Arab American seat at the table and and their support, I think, for years to come. And everybody, that is State Representative Alibis Farhat of Michigan's 3rd State House District in Dearborn, Detroit, and Melvindale. I just to close things off on the latest note possible, Representative Farhat, uh, at the end of every segment, we play a song. Do you have a favorite song that you want to be played after this segment? Oh, wow. The last time uh, the last time I, you know, we should pick a Taylor Swift song. Something appropriate. I think what is it? Uh, Taylor Swift's Midnight album won a won a Grammy recently. So anything from that album, right? And honor and honor the Kansas City Chiefs making the Super Bowl. <laughs> thank you so much, Representative, for joining us on the Murs Monday podcast. All right, thank you. He wanted a comfortable, I wanted that pain. He wanted a bride, I was making my own name. Chasing that fame, he stayed the same. All of me changed like this. Joining us for this segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Lou Glazer, the president and co-founder of the Michigan Future Inc., a nonprofit organization based in Ann Arbor, dedicated to economic development strategies and developing new ideas for the state's role in a knowledge-driven economy. Recently, Michigan Future Inc. and the University of Michigan put out a report in October of last year on how Michigan's per capita income during 2022 was 13% below the national average, making our state, I believe how you described it, Lou, one of the country's poorest states structurally, correct? Correct. Well, I mean, first off, thank you so much, Lou, for joining us. And also a disclaimer to our listeners, there will be a few number drops in this segment. Uh, but Lou, when you say structurally poor, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, it's not cyclical. It's it's true whether the economy is strong or weak. Um, and, and it's long term. In the past, we've tended to describe mainly driven by the unemployment rate more than sort of household or per capita income, describe Michigan as not doing well when we're in a recession kind of thing. This We now are structurally one of the nation's poorest states in boom times and bust times. It, it, it's just ongoing. I mean, what makes us new, the reason why 
we re-released the report that we did in 2004 is, is the exact opposite was true in the 20th century. We were, Amer- we were one of America's most prosperous states. So it's been the last 20, 25 years that Michigan has collapsed compared to the rest of the country. And the story we're trying to tell is, so that, that's what we predicted in 2004. Unfortunately, it became true. If we keep on the current path, we're going to be the third poorest state in the country behind ahead of only Alabama and Mississippi. And anytime you are in the same sentence as Mississippi, it's not a good thing. And just to kind of relay to our listeners some of the numbers that your report had, I mean, Michigan's real personal income per capita grew by $11,095, while nationally it grew by $19,389. And and what was the time frame you looked at? It was from, was it from the early 2000s to 2022? It's uh, 99 to 2022, which is the latest uh, available data. So the, the 19,000, 11,000 is all in 2022 dollars. So, you know, to sort of correct for inflation. So, yeah, I mean, we're, and, and, and that uh, 11,000 growth is the worst in the country. So I, over that period of time, our per capita income growth was 50th out of the 50 states. And when you say like per capita income, is that how much that a resident who lives in our state is able to earn for themselves? Yes, so it's per person. Um, so it includes, you know, includes all 10 million of us. And so per capita income is made up. I mean, this is going to get really longish. Per capita income come there, there are three sources of, of income. The one that's the most important is uh, employment earnings, which is money earnings from all work. So it's payroll jobs, gig jobs, second jobs, bonuses overtime pay, everything, plus employer pay benefits. So that's called employment earnings. Uh, The second is investment earnings, not counting capital gains. So it's dividend interest and rent. And the third is government transfer payments, which is Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, housing benefits, student uh, Pell Grants, all that stuff is the third category. So it's a combination of all three. Lou, isn't isn't this predictable though that Michigan would fall further down per capita with the auto uh, with the automatization of the auto industry? Um, we don't have as many workers in the auto industry as we did before. The jobs that we do have um, maybe don't pay as much as they used to back in the fifties and the sixties when we were a very rich state because we had the birthplace of the middle class in in this state. And with so many things in the auto industry spreading out across the country, across the globe, there's not as many jobs. It, it would only seem natural, right? It's not a failing of public policy so much as it is the fall off of the auto industry. Yeah, I think that's 100% wrong. So everything you said is true, but Michigan could have grown the knowledge economy, and we did not. There is a growing high-wage part of the American economy that Michigan is not participating in. That's California. That's New York. I mean, that's where that's where the knowledge economy is right, right. now. Uh, so that's not accurate. So Massachusetts is number one, not California, New York. Um, Minnesota and Illinois are both top 15 states. They're not on the coast. They are, they are knowledge economy states. We chose to compete with Tennessee, not Minnesota. And we've ended up where we're at. 
What do you mean we, we competed with Tennessee? The entire focus of Michigan's economic development strategy over the last 20 years and probably longer uh, in both Democratic and Republican administrations and irrespective of who's been in control in the legislature has been focused on competing for factors rather than competing for the knowledge economy. That predates the 90s. I mean, that's like... Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I agree with that. But the difference was in the 70s and 80s, manufacturing was the high-paid part of the economy. It was good to be competing for manufacturing jobs then. It is now no longer the high-wage part of the economy. So let me just give you two simple examples. Michigan loses Blue Oval City to Tennessee. Those with clout declare Armageddon and spend billions of dollars going after the next auto plants. Detroit and Grand Rapids compete for Amazon headquarters. 50,000 jobs were offered at $125,000. And neither of them made the top 20, and it was a one-day story. Amazon is the high-wage future. Blue Oval City is not. Our priority has been, and it's a much smaller story, but I think it's pretty important. Rivian, which at the time was considered to be a big deal in the new auto industry, moves their headquarters from Detroit to California. Nobody covers it. Nobody covers it. That is the part of the auto industry that's high wage and growing. We don't care about it. And because of all those things, not caring about Amazon, not caring about Rivian, not caring about Volkswagen moving their headquarters out of Michigan, not caring about Cadillac moving their headquarters out of Michigan. We can go on and on and on, not caring about sort of the Kellogg moving most of their headquarter operations to Chicago. That's why we're 39th. And if we don't change, are going to be lower. Is it because we don't offer the same tax structure that we're not giving enough tax breaks to these companies? Right. Massachusetts, Minnesota are higher tax states than Michigan. They are high prosperity knowledge economy states. Taxes are not anywhere near the top of the agenda for knowledge economy. So back to Amazon. The Detroit incentive package for the Amazon headquarters that did not make the top 20 was $4 billion. Virginia that won was $1 billion. So if money mattered, Amazon would have had Detroit clearly on the top 20 list and would have come here. Why didn't they come here? Because this is an economy that's driven by talent. It's driven by, this is a talent-driven economy. The single best predictor of a state's per capita income, unless they are a fossil fuel extraction state, which are there's a couple of them, um, is the proportion of adults with a four-year degree, uh, particularly uh, the proportion of 25 to 34 olds with a four-year degree. That's, you know, that's the analysis that we put out in 2004, that if Michigan didn't grow the knowledge economy and didn't concentrate 25 to 34 olds with a four-year degree, we'd get poorer compared to the country. And we did. When you say knowledge economy, I mean, just to clarify to some of yeah. our listeners, I mean, what all industries does that consist of? So there are the big four are it's sort of like I remember the numbers, right? It's like 23 million out of 25 million uh, jobs are information, which is uh, software, uh, telecommunications and media, finance and insurance, uh, professional and uh, business services, which are law firms, engineering firms, accounting firms, 
you know, marketing firms on and on and on, uh, and corporate headquarters. There are three, uh, so the, these are what we describe as high-wage knowledge economy industries. There are three manufacturing industries uh, that employ about 2 million of the 25 million, uh, aerospace, computers, and chemicals and pharmaceuticals. All of them nationally, well, all of them have average wages above 100,000. Nationally, so one of the things we didn't know until we did the update is, is Michigan it has a low percentage of our workers in those seven industries. But I think even more importantly is, is our average wages in the knowledge industries is 100,000. Nationally, it's 125,000. In Massachusetts, it's 165,000. So we not only don't have enough knowledge economy jobs, our knowledge economy jobs pay a lot less than nationally and in leading edge states like Massachusetts. If we don't fix that, we're not going to move away from 39th. In your perspective, I mean, what would you say are the top three things that the state could do to make Michigan more appetizing for high paying knowledge economy jobs? Right. So we've said for 20 years that the key is getting younger and better educated. So that means that the economic development priority is preparing, retaining, and attracting college graduates, period. This is a talent-driven economy. Talent attracts capital. So we used for years a quote from Rick Harlgaard, who's the publisher of Forbes, that Growing Michigan Together Council used this time, which is watch where smart people go, because where they go, robust economic activity will follow. That's lesson Michigan has not learned. So that's the priority, prepare, retain, and attract college graduates. And the retain and attract stuff require, because young professionals are over-concentrated in big metros, and particularly in the central cities of big metros, it requires vibrant, transit-rich cities. Not a priority in Michigan, we're paying the price for it. Both of those things, both preparing college graduates and creating vibrant transit-rich cities is something public policy has everything to do with. We've made neither a priority. You know, I think, I guess I have a, a question that is also has a little bit of a backstory too, because honestly, I mean, how much do you think residents, especially young residents are thinking about this? Because I can definitely say, you know, I'm turning 26 this month and Kyle do not wish me a happy birthday. If anyone asks, I'm turning 21 part six. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, when I was in it, when I was finishing up my undergrad, I never thought to myself, oh, if. I stay in Michigan, I'm not going to make as much money as I would if I moved to Massachusetts. And I was ultimately told by parents and older people that if I were to pursue employment in these other states, these bigger cities, of course, I would make more just because the cost of living would be higher. Is that do you think that's the sentiment that have a lot of people have? Recent college graduates are over concentrated in high cost of living places because they're getting something for their money. It is where they want to live. A lot of my friends' kids have ended up elsewhere, and they all go crazy that their kids are paying so much for housing. And it's almost like they think their kids are dopes, right? Why the hell are they living in Manhattan rather than Grand Rapids? It's because they wanna live in Manhattan. They're getting something for their money. And what they're getting for their money is the living environment that they are looking for. 
Manhattan and Brooklyn have the largest concentration of young professionals post-pandemic of any place in the country by far. They're two of the most expensive places in the country. The young professionals who choose to live there are not dopes. They have made a conscious choice that they're willing to pay more money because they're getting something for their money. It's no different than middle-class parents with kids paying more for housing in good school districts. So parents value school districts, young professionals value vibrant central cities where they don't have to drive. So it's great that you're here and, and all the young professionals that are here are contributing a lot to the Michigan economy, but that doesn't change the fact that we are 31st in the proportion of uh, young adults with a four-year degree. You cannot be a high prosperity state and be 31st. You know, that brings me to another question. I mean, does the cost of livelihood necessities in Michigan, like housing, transportation, utilities, uh, do these align with the slow personal income per capita growth in our state? Or are we just witnessing a scenario where these expenses are rising and not considering how wages are not moving at the same pace? Yeah, I, I mean, prices are not set by wages. I mean, the, wages has something to do with with prices, but the economic well-being of people in the state is not what determines how expensive a McDonald's hamburger is. But no, I think ultimately, to I guess to water down my question, I mean, does the cost of housing and transportation in Michigan, is it appropriate when you think about how much people earn in our state? Yeah, I don't, I mean, that's like a value judgment. I mean, prices aren't set by value judgments. They're you know, they're set by companies trying to maximize profits. So, and they're going to charge. I don't think the two are connected. Now, the consequence of Michigan not having enough high-wage jobs is six in 10 Michigan jobs now don't pay enough to support a middle-class family of three. So that means that we got a higher percentage of people that are struggling to make ends meet than these higher prosperity states. But that doesn't yeah, I, I just don't think that that prices are determined by the relative well-being of people in Michigan. I just I just don't think the two are connected. Yeah, I, I understand where you're getting at. And I mean, you and Kyle were just talking about the auto industry. And obviously, yeah. your report talks about how earnings in motor vehicle and parts, machinery, fabricated metals, manufacturing declined from 15.5% of all earnings in Michigan in 1999 to 7.9% of earnings in 2022. And I, and I want to ask this question about economic stimulation, uh, specifically when you look at the governor's state of the state where she proposed rebates for buying new vehicles, uh, $2,000 for an EV, a $500 bonus if it's union made. I mean, does that, do you imagine that actually doing anything to stimulate our economy to kind of get an extra boost to the manufacturing industry that once was our state's bread and butter? Um, no. Uh, I guess is a simple answer. Uh, but secondly, I mean, the, the, the way you frame the question, even if it did, it doesn't change the fact that uh, including the auto industry, manufacturing, except for those three industries that I mentioned, aerospace, uh, chemicals and pharmaceuticals, uh, and computers, is now an average, an average pay industry. So 
you can't improve your, the only way you improve per capita income, the, the employment earnings part of per capita income is with higher wage jobs. Those jobs are no longer higher wage. So it's growing the knowledge economy that is the key to moving back towards 16th, which we were in 1999, rather than being 39th that we are today. What do you think is the, and, and I, I, I'm not sure if this is necessarily your area of expertise, so totally fine if you want to move on. I mean, but what do you think is the purpose and the intention of things like rebates for one industry? Yeah, I, A, it's not my area of expertise. Uh, B, there's, at least as far as we know, there's no correlation. So we're trying to improve from our start in 1991. Our focus has been on the economic well-being of Michigan households and and, and particularly on uh, high-wage jobs in Michigan. Economic well-being of households in Michigan, high-wage jobs in Michigan, no correlation with industry rebates. I, I guess, and I know that you kind of talked about policy recommendations, but when you think about last month's state of the state address from the governor. I mean, was there anything that particularly excited you that could address this issue? So both in the state of the state and over the last uh, several years, the administration and legislature are increasing investments in education pre-K through 12, uh, 16. So that's the stuff that I think has been most uh, exciting for us. And this state of the state uh, continues that. Of particular importance is the Achievement Scholarship, which we think of as a really big deal and really important that was done in the last legislative session. But I'd say that the two things that we care the most about and think are most important, which is making the knowledge economy the focus of economic strategy and uh, vibrant central cities, were you know, we're basically missing in the state of state. I, I think my final question as we approach the end here is uh, the, the importance the importance of diversity of jobs. You know, it seems that there's this call to promote the knowledge economy, but I can imagine that there's probably a decent number of residents who don't want to participate in the knowledge economy. They want to work somewhere else. I mean, what is kind of your response to make sure that there's career opportunities with people with all types of professional appetites? Uh, but that's going to happen in the economy no matter what. It's not like it's not like Massachusetts because it's knowledge economy concentrated doesn't have carpenters or doesn't have fast food workers. I mean, it has all those workers. What, what Michigan, the difference between Michigan and the country, and particularly Michigan compared to a leading edge state like Massachusetts is, is we don't have enough of the high paying knowledge jobs. So, I mean, I would argue for the last 20, 30, 40 years, Michigan has been focused primarily on retaining growing factory jobs. So we've sort of, we've had a focus. Uh, it's just that it's not in this economy uh, where the high wage jobs are concentrated in knowledge-based industries. Uh, if you're going to have a focus, it's got to be on knowledge-based industries. H having said that, uh, what we're advocating for is not picking industries. What we're saying is, is where you have high proportions of adults with four-year degrees who choose to live in a state, you get the knowledge economy. 
you don't have to pick the knowledge economy. Amazon went to Virginia for talent. So it's our talent deficit. That's the reason why we're 39th. I think my final question for you, Lou, is going to be a speed question. Uh, How much harder, when you think now that Michigan is fighting for population growth, I mean, it seems literally here you have Michigan where the personal income per capita last year was 57,038. And then you have Massachusetts and Connecticut where the personal income per capita is both more than 82,000 in each of those states. I mean, how much harder does this make Michigan's population growth goal when it is quite literally competing with states where you can just simply earn 20,000 plus more? Per person. Um, so it's, uh, sure, it's, uh, this would have been a lot easier to do when we were 16th and when we're 39th. Having said that, we still have got to create a, the goal needs to be to create a place where Generation Z, particularly college educated Generation Z, wants to live. If we don't do that, we're going to get poorer. No, thank you so much, everybody. That is Lou Glazer, the president and co-founder of the Michigan Future, Inc. Thank you for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Sure. Take care. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Today's episode was uploaded a bit later than usual this afternoon, but I appreciate you all for your patience and for taking time out of your day to tune into our conversations. I would like to thank our various guests on today's episode, like Communications Director Robert Morris Owens of the Michigan Republican Policy, an unofficial advisor to the Christina Caramo fraction of the state GOP. Additionally, thank you to State Representative Alabas Farhat, a Dearborn Democrat, and Lou Glazer, president of Michigan Future, Inc. I would like to express my tremendous gratitude to our editor, Kyle Malin, and to Maggie George, our politics reporter here at MERS. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast was provided by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okamas, which is responsible for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next week, I am Samantha Shriver. I'll be honest.